Welcome to the Siskiyou Christian Fellowship Podcast. Our prayer is that the following verse-by-verse teaching of God's Word would bring you closer to Jesus. Uh, So Romans chapter 12, where we're going to be this morning. And I love Romans chapter 12. This is kind of really uh, where things in the book of Romans begin to get practical. And uh, I'm excited to dive into this section this morning. Uh, But before, uh, you know, I was a pastor. Uh, Previously, I was in sales. I was an outside sales guy for a a lumber company. And I really loved it. It was a super fun job. And one of uh, my favorite things about that job was our annual sales meeting. Uh, You know, 100 plus salesmen, all of the district managers and sale managers and store managers and uh, the CEO and the owner of the company, we'd all gather together to do this annual sales meeting. And the cool thing about this meeting is that it took place at K1 Speed. It's a, a big go-kart track in Sacramento. And so <clears throat> our sales meetings would be broken up with go-kart racing. It was the best. And you want to talk about a competitive group of guys, all these guys competing against each other in sales already. And guys are already competitive, aren't they? I mean, you could have a group of guys standing around. One guy picks up a rock and throws it at a tree. The guy next to him is going to see if he can hit the tree, too. That's just the way guys are. And so, man, we would uh, do all of this racing, super competitive. I'll have you know that your pastor came out on top on more than one occasion. I've got the little plastic trophy to prove it. But it was really all about the the bragging rights anyways. I mean, there, there was nothing in it except for... The bragging rights. But before we were able to go out onto the track, we had to go through the race training, right? We had to learn all the race terms. We had to learn the race definitions. We had to be familiar with the track and the track limits. We had to know what all the flags meant and what we were supposed to do when they were waved. We had to, you know, uh, go through all of the, the go-kart and and the racing helmet and the track suit. These, are, these aren't the, the go-karts like at Family Fun Center. These are a helmet, race suit, shoes, sign your life away, waiver, 60 miles an hour down the back straight. I mean, they're, they're crazy. And so you had to do all of this training protocol before you could go out and actually race. And then after, we were equipped with the information. After we had all the knowledge and the understanding We were expected to take all of that knowledge and understanding and go out and put it to use in in the real world. Go and live that out now. And and that's exactly what Paul has done for us in Romans chapter uh, 12. Chapters 1 through 11 have been all about doctrine. Uh, Really, teachings and instructions and principles that really establish why we believe what we believe. And, you know, after taking these first 11 chapters to establish all the doctrinal truth, now Paul is encouraging us to go out and put all of that knowledge into use. Take everything that we've learned now in chapters 1 through 11 and go out and live the Christian life. Uh, And Paul's going to, over the next couple chapters, really lay out for us how we are to behave in society as Christians. What does it look like to live out this Christian life in relationship to God? You know, how are we to respond to the Lord? How are we to respond to the world? How are we to use our giftings 
How are we to respond to other Christians? How are we to respond to <clears throat> the authorities uh, in this world, the law of the land, our neighbors, our kids? How are we to respond uh, as Christians in all these different situations? And, you know, this is, again, this is the section where the rubber hits the road. This is the section where we really get to it because, you know, we can gather together and we can do church, you know, twice a week from now until eternity. But if we never put into practice the things that the Lord teaches us, man, then we're going to be stunted. There's a reason we get together. We worship the Lord. Yes, we come, we honor him. But also we come to learn and to grow. And part of that growing is when we leave this place and go out into the world, that we apply the things that we've learned here. Uh, just practically. And that's what Paul is going to really do. He's going to bring some uh, exhortation, some admonishment, really teach us how we ought to live our lives. And, you know, I really like what uh, Warren Wiersbe says. He says, you know, we must translate our learning to living. We must translate our learning to living. Again, if all we do is learn and it never translates to living, boy, that we've missed such a great opportunity and we miss out on a bunch of blessings. And so, before we dive in to look at what our relationship as Christians is to the world and to the government and to our neighbors and to even each other, what we need to look at is what is our relationship with God? How is this relationship going uh, vertically? Because our relationship with God ver vertically, it, it, it has a direct impact on all of our relationships horizontally. Right? If our relationship with the Lord is out of whack, Boy, man, our marriages, our friendships, all the different relationships that we're engaged in, they're going to be out of whack as well. But when we're surrendered, when our relationship with the Lord is right, a byproduct of that is that our relationships horizontally are right. So that's where Paul starts. It's relational theology. Again, it's the idea that when our relationship with the Lord is right, our relationship with others will be right also as a byproduct. And so Paul here, he, he starts there. He says, man, if we're going to talk about what it looks like to walk out this Christian life practically, we have to look at what it looks like to be a Christian and how we respond to God practically first before we move into all of that. And, and that's exactly what we're going to do this morning in this first section. And so verse 1 of chapter 12. And we're only going to look at a couple verses uh, this morning, but I promise you there's plenty in there uh, to take up our time. Verse 1 says, I beseech you, uh, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. So Paul starts off this section as he's going to encourage us and show us what it looks to, to, to walk practically with the Lord. He starts this section by saying, I beseech you, or I implore of you, or I beg you, or I urge you. Paul is saying, hey, listen, uh, I'm going to show you how to walk this out. Trust me on this one. And, and why should we trust Paul? Why should we take his word for it? Well, because Paul is coming from a place of both experience and authority. When it comes with living a life that is surrendered to God, when it comes to a, a life that is lived in service to the Lord, and Paul has got some pretty good experience, doesn't he? I mean, he laid down his life and his dreams and everything to pursue God's will in his life. 
Uh, Paul comes from a place of experience, and he comes from a place of authority. Let's not forget that Paul is an apostle, that there was that authority flowing through him. He wrote a good portion of the New Testament. And, and so Paul comes from a place of experience and uh, authority. It'd be like if Gordon Ramsay showed up, and he was up here. We wouldn't invite Gordon Ramsay to church because he cussed us too much, but uh, we would invite him. I'm just kidding. We just wouldn't let him preach. Uh, maybe we would. I don't know. I shouldn't say that either. But anyways, if Gordon Ramsay showed up, and he was like, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to tell you something. I want you to hear me out on this. When you scramble eggs, you need to use lots of butter and low heat. Don't use oil. We would listen to him because he's coming from a place of experience and authority. And that's Paul. He knows what he's talking about. We can listen to him this morning as he walks us through. What does it look like to relate to the Lord as Christians? But not just Paul as this you know, person. Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's where the rubber hits the road, right? That all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine, for uh, reproof, for correction, for instructions in righteous living. That we, as men and women of God, might be equipped to serve the Lord with all that we have. So all of scripture. And, and I want to make that clear this morning because that's what we do. We get together and we study God's word. Why do we spend so much time going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through God's word? Because all of it is God-breathed. It's trustworthy. It's solid. You can build your lives on this. And today, in our world, in our culture, that is under attack. And we're going to talk about that as we make our way through the sermon this morning. But Paul here, he says, listen to me. I beseech you, uh, you know, trust me on this one. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as living sacrifice. So I beseech you, therefore. Now, you guys know that when we see therefore in Scripture, we need to find out what it's there for. Because whenever you see a therefore, it, it connects the following statement and ideas and facts with the previous statement, ideas, and facts. So when Paul says therefore, it's as if like in our vernacular, he would be saying in light of. Right? So he's saying, I beg of you guys, brethren, Christians, to present your bodies as living sacrifices in light of the fact that, see, he's connecting this plea with us to lay down our lives as a living sacrifice to the things that we have spent our time studying through the first 11 chapters of this book. In light of what? In light of God's mercies. We are to lay down our lives as living sacrifice really in light of God's mercies. And what are the mercies of the Lord that Paul is talking about here? All the things that we've looked at. And Paul has done such a good job the way he's laid out the book of Romans. And as we started this book, Paul started by showing us our deep need for God. He showed us that every single one of us as human beings are 100% completely, hopelessly lost in our sin. Whether you are a, a heathen, whether you are uh, a do-gooder, whether you are uh, a religious zealot, Jew, we're all without excuse. We all need Jesus. We're all lost in our sin. Whether that is the sin that we inherited from Adam. You see, here's the thing. Uh, God created this planet in a beautiful, perfect state. There was no sin. There was no death. It was just Adam, Eve, the garden, and God. It was great. There was fellowship. It was wonderful. But because love can't exist inside a vacuum, God gave Adam free will. Here you go, buddy. It's all yours. You can choose to walk with me and do things my way, or you can choose to do things your way. And Adam 
as a representative of all of humanity, he chose poorly. And when Adam sinned, death entered into humanity. The curse of sin entered into humanity. And from that point on, boy, every human that was born was born into that sin. That's just the reality. And maybe you hear this morning, I don't like that. Man, I would have done a better job than Adam would have. Thanks a lot, Adam. No, you wouldn't have. Adam was the best representative that we could have. It's like if you got challenged to a boxing match and you hired Mike Tyson to be your representative. If he lost, you wouldn't have said that you could do better than him because you couldn't. No one could have done better than Adam. He was hot off the press, man. He didn't have a belly button. Well, maybe he had, but I don't know. We could debate about that. But because of Adam's sin, boy, we're born into sin. It's inescapable. So whether it's the sin that we inherited from Adam or, let's just be honest, the sin that we've all committed, right? None of us are without sin. That's what the Bible says, that we are all sinners, every single one of us. And even if you could live a life that had the outward appearance of being sinless, let's just say you never lied, you never stole, you never cheated. See, God looks beyond the external and he looks at the heart. Jesus made that very clear. He taught us that if you look upon a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. If you hate another brother, you've committed murder in your heart. The Ten Commandments, you shall not covet. Covet is an internal sin. And the Bible says if you've broken one, you've broken all. And the wages of sin is death. And that's where Paul started, right out of the gate. You guys are all toast and we're all going, oh man, this sucks. We're toast. There's nothing. What are we going to do? It's hopeless. Man, if God's standard is perfection in in thought and in deed from birth to death, then who could possibly be saved exactly? Nobody can. And that's when Paul, he brings in the good news that we were lost in our sin, but God, because he loved us, well, he saved us. And Paul begins to discuss the reality of justification that we've been justified when we put our faith in Jesus, that we have a clean slate now. It's just as though we've never sinned at all. That if we put our faith in Jesus, in the work of the cross, what he's done on our behalf, uh, if we believe, we put the, the weight of our lives, we trust. Have you guys ever seen, there's all sorts of tourist attractions all over the, the world now. They have these glass walkways or glass bridges. And you walk out on these glass bridges And there's nothing between you and a thousand foot plummet to your certain death except for like, you know, a one inch piece of glass. And these tourist areas, they've gotten clever. They've installed in the middle of these these areas, these kind of digital pieces of glass. So when you step on it, it it makes the sound of cracking glass and it looks like the glass. So you see these people, oh, I'm brave. I'm putting my trust in the glass. And then they think it's cracking. Oh, they're hanging on to the rail for dear life. But that's what it looks like to put your faith or your trust in Jesus. It's not just to know or believe intellectually. It's to put the weight of your life on it like the people walking on that glass. Right? And so, man, we've been justified just as though we've never sinned. uh, By faith, by believing uh, through propitiation. See, here's the thing about our sin. I'm so glad to be forgiven. But because God is a righteous God... Because God is a just God. He just doesn't wink at your sin. He just doesn't sweep our sin under the rug and say, all right, I guess we're good. Because God is righteous, because God is just, our sin has to be paid for. And that's what propitiation means. Jesus became the payment for my sin and yours. 
He took my sin upon himself and then gave me his righteousness so that you and I, we have an imputed righteousness, a righteousness that is not our own, a righteousness that has been given to us. We're robed in the righteousness of God. That's why when, when God looks upon us, he doesn't see us for all our faults and failures. He sees us through the lens of the blood. He sees us as a finished work through the lens of the blood of Jesus. It is a beautiful thing. And this is all a big review. If you're like, boy, this sounds familiar. It's because this is what we've looked at. These are the mercies of God. That we were hopelessly lost, but now we've been justified by putting our faith in the work of the cross. That God became our punishment and gave us his righteousness. That now we've been reconciled to God. There is no more war between us and God. There's peace. And we're free from death. We're free from sin. We're free from the law. We're free to live this new life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And God did all of this for us while we were lost in our sin. He didn't wait for us to get our act together. He died for you on your worst day in your worst moment. The Lord tells us that, man, our current circumstances, he's working those together for good. That our future, man, it's secure. Nothing can separate us from God. That he's faithful and nothing can ever ever change that. That's a pretty good deal if you ask me. I don't know. But when I review the mercies of God, I say, wow, Lord, you are pretty good to us. And that's the point. That's what Paul is saying. In light of all of that, in light of all that God has done for us, how should we live our lives? First and foremost, we should live our lives in surrender to the one who saved us. Imagine, if you will, uh, somebody saved your life, pushed you out of the, the way of a, a, a truck or saved you from a burning building. There would be just this debt of gratitude that you would owe them on a human level. God has saved us from eternal damnation. And not only has he just saved us, but he's poured out the riches of his goodness upon us. Boy, Paul's saying, in light of all God has done for you, what is our response, man? It, it's to, to surrender. To say, Lord, my life was bought with a price. It belongs to you now. Do with it what you see fit, that we would be surrendered, holding nothing back in body, mind, and will. And that's step number one, Paul says, as we move into this section of how we're to live our lives out as Christians. Paul says, step number one, and be surrendered to the Lord. Present your body as a living sacrifice. You say, what on earth does that even mean? To present your life as a living sacrifice. Now, we're all familiar with the Old Testament sacrifices. Right? They would bring a, a goat or a lamb or a ram or a bull or whatever it is. And that animal would be sacrificed on the altar. The animal would be given wholly to God. Everything that's holding nothing back. Everything that that animal was was given wholly unto the Lord. But it was also killed. So I'm glad that the Lord hasn't called us to that sort of sacrifice. He calls us to a living sacrifice. But the idea is the same, that we would be wholly surrendered, holding nothing back. So a living sacrifice, we have a couple examples of what a living sacrifice is in Scripture. And the first one is Isaac. You guys remember the story of Isaac? Isaac was the son of promise. His dad was Abraham, the patriarch, the, the leader of Israel, the first one. Uh, Abraham had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. His 12 sons became the 12 tribes of Israel, and that's how that works. We're going way back to the original promise. When Abraham was an old man, 80 years old, God said, Abraham, trust me, follow me, and I will make of you a great nation. 
Your descendants will be more than the stars of the sky. Your name will be blessed and you will be a blessing to all the nations of the world. It's the Abraham covenant. We're we're familiar with it. We've talked about it a lot over the last couple weeks. But what an amazing promise. Could you imagine if you're 80 years old and the Lord came to you and said, I'm going to bless you with a large family. If you had no kids, you'd be like, "Uh, Lord, you got the right address because I'm not having any kids here anytime soon. But God came through for Abram. And that promised son was Isaac. And the Bible calls Isaac Abraham's only son and his loved son. But after that son of promise was brought into Abraham's life, God tested Abraham and said, Abraham, I want you to take Isaac and I want you to, to, to lay down his life as a sacrifice for me. Your only son, the one you love. And Abraham trusted the Lord and said, all right. And as they were making their way up the hill where the sacrifice was going to take place, Isaac's a smart dude. says, Dad, uh, I see the fire. I see the wood. But where's the sacrifice? And there's that beautiful scripture there in Genesis where Abraham says, God will provide himself a lamb. God will provide himself. That foreshadowing, that picture of Jesus, God did provide himself as the lamb the lamb slain before the foundations of the world. And so Isaac, there's a bunch of debate about how old Isaac was during this time. You know, and, and just so you know, we really don't know. Oh, we can guess a range, but no one can say for sure, well, Isaac was 33 years old exactly. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we do know that he wasn't a kid. We, uh, most Bible commentators believe he was between 20 and 30 years old. We know that he was old enough to notice that a part of the puzzle was missing, Right? He knew how the sacrificial system works. He said, Dad, we're missing the sacrifice here. We also know that he was strong enough to carry the wood on his back up the mountain. Right? All of the, the wood needed for a sacrifice, that's a lot of wood. He was a strong man, meaning he was probably between the ages of 20 and 30. So I know it's church. I'm going to catch you off guard. We're going to do a little math this morning. No, not math at church. But if Abraham was 100 years old when Isaac was born, And then when they went to to make the sacrifice, Isaac was 20 years old, let's say, conservatively. How old was Abraham? 120. You guys pass. Let's all go home. No, not yet. I say all that to say this. Isaac laid down his life willingly. As he was walking up the hill, he he was putting the pieces together. He could have said, "Uh, no, thank you. Peace. I'm out, Dad. I'm not going to participate in this crazy religious thing that you're taking part in. But he trusted the Lord. He trusted his dad. And so he laid his life down as a sacrifice. I'm all in. Right? But, but he lived because at the last minute, God said, no, don't kill your son. See, that was the first picture of a living sacrifice because he sacrificed his life, everything he had. God, it's yours, but he still lived. But that leads us to the second sacrifice, the living sacrifice that we see in Scripture, which, of course, is Jesus, the greatest living sacrifice. Because Jesus did. He laid down his life as a sacrifice. You remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? What did he say? He said, if there's any way that this cup should pass for me. What cup was Jesus talking about? The cup of God's wrath being poured out. If there's any other way to do this, let's do that. But not my will, thy will be done. And Jesus laid down his life as a sacrifice for us in obedience to the Father on the cross. But see, Jesus didn't stay dead. Aren't you glad for that, that we don't serve a dead God? And amen. Amen. That Jesus is alive and well, living in us. He's 
at the right hand of the Father, on his throne, glorified, making intercession for us. Man, the grave could not hold Jesus. Death could not stop Jesus. He conquered death and he conquered sin. And, and he is the greatest picture of that living uh, sacrifice. And, and that's how we're to live our life. We are to be that living sacrifice. Even as Isaac said, I'm all in. Even as Jesus said, I'm all in. We are to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I am all in. See, before we belong to the Lord, we use our bodies to pursue all manner of pleasure, didn't we? But we were governed by our own carnal nature, and so we used our bodies to glorify whatever we wanted, whatever lust, whatever thing we wanted to chase after. But now we're saying, Lord, this body belongs to you, and I'm laying down my life as a, a living sacrifice. And this is what the Bible teaches us, that if we... As people say, you know what, I'm going to continue to live my life as a Christian. For everything that I want, the Bible says you'll, you'll lose your life. But if you lose your life for Jesus' sake, Jesus said, then you'll find your life. See, we get things all backwards. We, we, we spend our life chasing carrots, thinking that it's going to satisfy us, bring us joy, bring us peace. It never will. What brings us true joy, what brings us true satisfaction, true life, is when we lay down our lives for Jesus. And that's what Paul is talking about. Lay down your life. Be all in this morning towards God. Right? Scaling back. How are we going to live out this Christian life? Step number one, man, be surrendered to Jesus. Be all in. But what does that sacrifice look like? Paul just doesn't say be a sacrifice. He says be a living sacrifice that, that's what? That's holy and acceptable to God. To holy and acceptable to God. So thinking back again to the Old Testament sacrifice, the lamb, the ram, the bull, the whatever. You could not just bring any, you know, old, fat, overweight, half-blind, three-legged, you know, mangy, balding, flea-bitten sheep to the Lord. Uh, the priest would even not, not even allow you to do that. And then what kind of sacrifice would that be anyways? No, we're to bring our first, and we are to bring our very best. They were to bring a lamb that was without spot or blemish. The sacrifice had to be a good-looking specimen. And so we are to bring the Lord our first and our best. See, don't fall into the, the trap of giving the Lord your leftovers. While I have some extra time and maybe I'll survive some extra money, maybe I'll... No, give the Lord your first and your best. Now, I know that we're close to the Christmas season and I'm going to be treading on shaky ground here. This could be a little controversial. But has anybody ever received a re-gift Right? You're like, wait a second. You open a present, you're like, this looks like the Chia Pet I got you for your birthday, and now I got it for Christmas. Like, how do you feel in that? Do you feel like, boy, that was a real sacrificial gift? They were really thinking of you? Or you feel, oh man, that's what it's like when we give the Lord our leftovers. Right? We don't want to re. Now, here's even more controversial. How many of you guys are guilty of regifting? No, I'm just kidding. I don't want to know. <laughs> just, just don't be cheap. Nobody likes a regift. Actually, it can work out if you don't get caught, but we better not go there. Just probably better not, better not do that. But we're to give the Lord our best, the best of what we, we have. Now, does that mean that we have to be perfect to come to Jesus? Right? Well, I have to offer my body up as this perfect sacrifice. Be careful not to, to, to get these two things confused. This living sacrifice, you're not laying down your life to say, all right, Lord, now I'm acceptable and you'll save me. 
Right? This living sacrifice that Paul is talking about, it's not to attain salvation. It's in light of salvation. Lord, you've saved me, rescued me. I'm bound for heaven. And as a result, now I give you my life as a living sacrifice. See, we can come to the Lord however we want. I don't care what you're wrestling with this morning. What sexual immorality, what addiction, alcohol, if you're just a, a grumpy old fool, it doesn't make any difference. And you can come to the Lord as you are, and he will clean you up. Right? I'm not saying that you need to be perfect to come to Jesus. And we make that mistake all the time as human beings. Think, oh, man, i got to get my act together, and then I'll go to church. Man, just come to church and let Jesus work on your heart. You know people in your life, they're just in the gutter? Invite them to church. This is the best place they could possibly be. If you got hit by a car, right, would you, you know, set the bones and stitch up your wounds before you went to the emergency room? I sure hope not. I know some tough people who might consider it, but you'd say no. That's where you go to get fit, and this is where you come to hear. When you are saved, then the Lord will work on you. Uh, he will do that, that fixing. He'll do that cleaning. Our job is just to come as we are. And then when we're his, we give him our best. And what does that look like? Again, is it, is it perfection? And it's just your best. My kids, you, you as parents, you know the, the birthday cards and the Father's Day cards, the homemade ones, or even just the pictures that your kids bring you. I have a six-year-old son uh, currently, and he is uh, really into drawing, and, and he makes me these, these cards. He brought me a, a card just a, a couple days ago. It was actually a picture that he drew me. And, you know, he sat down and said, Dad, look what I drew. I'm like, oh, okay. Now the pressure's on. I have to guess what he drew. Look at this. Wow, buddy, that's a really cool dragon. That's not a dragon. That's, that's a, a giraffe. Oh, that's a really good giraffe. And Oh, look at you drew the dog. That's Yoshi, Dad. Oh, yeah, no problem. Yeah, I, I don't take it and crumple it up and throw it away because it's not a, a, a quote-unquote masterpiece. No, that's his best, and he gave it to me in love, and that's the way we are with the Lord. Give your best to the Lord in your first, not your leftovers. And that's what Paul is talking about in the sacrifice. But why should we give the Lord our first and best? Well, Paul says it's our reasonable service. Isn't it reasonable? After all the Lord has done for us to say, Lord, and my life is yours. You've been so good to me. And again, when we lose our life for his name's sake, that's where it's at anyways. That's where the blessing is. It's built in. That's the way we want to live our lives. And so Paul says, man, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is a reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. So the opposite of being surrendered to God is being conformed to this world, right? to be conformed. And there's such a temptation to be conformed to this world. There's a constant pull that we we have in our lives, in our carnal nature, to, to fit in, to be accepted. Uh, we have this, this desire, really, it's just peer pressure, to, 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 to not ruffle feathers and, and, and to not rock the boat. And so we will go along with things that we know we shouldn't just because there's pressure to go in that direction. And, and, you know, there was uh, a university, I, I forgot the first service and I forgot the service, but they, they did this experiment on social conformity and our desires, human beings, to, to, to fit in. And they had this whole setup. Right? The, the setting was an eye doctor, and it was the waiting room of the eye doctor, and everybody is in on this experiment except for one gal. 
And so she walks into a waiting room that is full. She checks in. The receptionist says, hey, just sit down and the doctor will be with you. And so this waiting room filled with like 10 people, nine of them actors, one is this unsuspecting subject. Every couple minutes, there was this boop. And every time there's, everybody just stood up and then sat back down. And so she's like looking around like, what, what, what kind of funny farm did I just sign up for here? And then again, boop. Everybody stands up, sits back down while they're reading their magazine. Third time, boop, everybody sent, she stands up with them, looks around. So now she has no idea what's going on. She's just standing up and sitting down because everybody else is standing up and sitting down. And so this experiment goes further. They begin to call all of the actors in the waiting room back to the doctor one by one. So then there's four, boop, they're all standing up. Five, boop, or, or, you know, three, two. And then pretty soon, it's just her. She's the only one in the room. Boop, she gets up. This is what I do. Sits back. She's the only, there's nobody else even influencing her, and now that's the direction she's going. Then they take this experiment one step further, and they start introducing more subjects, unsuspecting people. So this guy walks in, he checks in, sits down, boop, she stands up, and he's like, why are you standing up every time it beeps? She says, I don't know, it's just what we're supposed to do. Sits back down, beeps, he gets up with her. And this goes on. Every single person who walks into the waiting room sits up, sits down. And so they get interviewed at the end. So why did you do that, even though you knew it was just totally ridiculous? And every single, well, I, I didn't want to be the outcast. I wanted to fit in. I was afraid of being different. I was afraid of rocking, whatever. But here's the thing as Christians. Dear brother and sister this morning, if you are a Christian, it's okay to be different. We're supposed to be different. We're not supposed to look like the world. We are not. We are supposed to be the salt and the light. There should be a contrast between our lives and the lives of the world. And it really is alarming to me how many churches have really adopted the ideologies of this world in our present day and age, in our culture. It's alarming. And there are lots of you know, people who are hip and relevant, who are cool and, and you know, they got tattoos and, and, and nothing against tattoos. I mean, but they're just, they're cool, you know? And they got this argument and it seems like they know the Bible really well and they've got all these letters after their name and, and they, they, they will take and they will, they will manipulate God's word. And their motivation really, as they present themselves as Bible scholars, it's not to surrender to God's will. They don't start with God's word and say, all right, this is what God says, I'm going to surrender to it. No, they start with their own will, and then they redefine God's terms in order to excuse their own hedonism. And this is taking place all over uh, our country in our culture. And, you know, God has made his plan for family and for sexuality super, super clear in the Bible. It really is. And yet the church has propped up trans pastors and gay pastors and, and, and lesbian pastors. And here's the thing with that. To be a, a, a gay Christian is a total oxymoron. To be a gay Christian. Now, it'd be like saying I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bank robbing Christian or I am an adulterous Christian or I'm a, a lying Christian. Now, am I saying that Christians don't sin? Of course not. Are you a Christian who sins? Hey, welcome to the club. Are you a Christian who has stumbled in sin? Man, you're in good company because we're all in the same boat. King David is a perfect example of that. 
King David was one who was an adulterer. He was a murderer, and yet he belonged to the Lord. So am I caught in some sort of, you know, hypocrisy? Oh, have I contradicted myself? What was David's response when he was faced with this sin? And that's the key. David's response was repentance, brokenness. See, here's the thing about our culture is that, that currently we want to be identified by our sin. You cannot simultaneously be surrendered to God. You can't at the same time be a living sacrifice unto the Lord while still grabbing on to your identity in your carnal nature. You cannot at the same time uh, present yourself as a living sacrifice and still embrace yourself. That's the big thing. Boys, embrace yourself. This is the way God made you. You be who God has made you to be. But nowhere in the Bible does it tell us to embrace ourselves. Nowhere. In fact, it says the opposite. We are to deny ourselves and pick up our cross and follow Jesus. The old man is dead. And what we've done is we've conflated sexuality with personality, sexuality with identity. We say, well, I identify as trans or I identify as gay. Those aren't things that we identify with. Those aren't things that describe people. Those are, are, are things that describe actions. Those words gay and trans, those are words that describe desires, behaviors. There are all sorts of desires that come into my life. But just because we have a desire to do something doesn't mean we ought to act on that desire. And listen, here's the thing. The reason I talk about this is because it's such a big deal in the church and it's such a big deal in our culture. You can't get away from it. And like I said, there are very convincing seemingly uh, very relevant people with degrees that would say, oh, look, we'll break this down. But understand, again, they're not being honest about what God's word says. They're changing God's word to cover up their own hedonism. And this is the danger in this all. It's all done under the guise of love. And if we identify with our sin instead of with our Savior, boy, we're in grave danger, eternal danger. For if we put ourselves in the position to say, this sin that God clearly calls a sin, it's not sin. I'm not going to call it sin. I'm not going to repent from it. If there's no repentance, there's no forgiveness. And if there's no forgiveness, oh my gosh, we're in a world of hurt. And that doesn't sound very loving to me. And my heart breaks for people who are caught up in this culture, uh, who have been sold this, this lie by the quote-unquote church. But be careful. We are not to, to conform to this world. We're not to buy into the ideologies of this world. But we are to be different. We are not to be conformed. And how is it that we are not conformed to this world? But we're not conformed to this world by what? By being transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that word transformed, it, it comes from the Greek word metamorpho, where we get our word metamorphosis. We all do the experiment as kids. The caterpillar that turns into the butterfly. We are to be transformed. Now, we are new creatures in Christ, but that sanctification process is still taking place in our lives. I say it all the time. Wouldn't it be nice if when we got saved, our struggles with sin just ended that day? I was never tempted to lose my temper or to lust or to do anything ever again. I'm saved. No, that's not the way it goes. And so we are in this position. Who are we going to be surrendered to, God or our carnal nature? And when we're surrendered to God, what does that look like? Boy, we are transformed by the renewing of our minds. That's how we avoid being conformed into this culture. And that word for transformed is the continuation of being transformed, like we're being sanctified. 
more and more were, were being made into the image of God. You know, it, it took God just a couple days to get his people out of Egypt, but it took 40 years to get Egypt out of his people. Right? This life is a struggle sometimes. And Paul says, man, the things I want to do, I don't. The things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Oh, this body of sin and death. But we are to, to be surrendered to the Lord, to give him our best, to not be conformed by into the ideologies of this world. And we do that by being transformed by the renewing of our minds. How do we renew our minds? What does that, does that mean? How do we renew our minds? You guys have heard the term garbage in, garbage out. Right? You are what you eat. If we as Christians spend all our days consuming nothing but trash, scrolling on the phone, taking in all sorts of junk, if we as Christians consume our lives with entertainment that is not God-honoring but against God, boy, that's going to mess us up. And we're conformed from the outside. It's the pressure of the world, but we're transformed from the inside out. It's that inward change that happens. And so, man, be careful what you, you take in. If I sat around and ate donuts all day, which I really would love to do, I'll just be completely honest with you. I would love to eat donuts and pie and cheeseburgers. I just like food. I, I mean, I get it. Uh, but if I did that, if all I did was eat junk, man, I'd be a 500-pounder for sure. we got to be careful what we take in. And so how do we transform our minds? How is our mind renewed? And by taking in God's word by being in prayer, by spending time with him. This word that Paul uses for uh, transformed, metamorpho, it, it, it is used only one other place in the New Testament. Uh, and it's in 2 Corinthians 3.18. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. See, so Paul, he, he understood that's how we're transformed. That's how our mind is renewed. In the presence of the Lord, what we're doing this morning, fellowship one with another, studying through his word, worshiping the Lord. And as we walk in this, as we're surrendered to the Lord, as we avoid being conformed to this world by uh, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds, and something drastic happens. Paul says, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That as we walk in these things, as we're surrendered to the Lord, man, as we are, are, are being transformed and not conformed, as our minds are being renewed and we're spending time with the Lord, you know what happens? Oh, we have a, a, an understanding of his will for our life. Oh, we, we, we understand the pieces begin to fit together. We discover what God's will is for us. How many of us in this room would say, yes, I want to know what God's will is for my life day to day? I mean, think all of us would. And God, what is your will for my life, left or right? You know, Taco Bell or Chipotle? It's always Chipotle, by the way, just in case you were wondering. What is it? You know, the Bible tells us that God desires to lead us by his eye. That we're so in tune with the Lord that when the Lord looks left, we go left. When he looks right, we go right. And that happens as we spend time with him. As we're transformed. As our minds are renewed. Uh, that happens in our life. And here's the thing. So often as Christians, in my life, I'll use me as an example. Right? I'll do all these things. 
I'll spend time in the world, and then, you know, life gets crazy, and I'm like, Lord, what's your will? And I'm trying to differentiate God's will from my own carnal nature. But it's difficult because I haven't been spending time with the Lord. Paul says, man, when we live this life of surrender, when we refuse to be conformed, but instead we're transformed by the renewing of our minds, and we understand God's will, and we know what he would have for us. And that's step number one. Right? This is just the, the tip of the iceberg. This is the beginning. How do we walk out our Christian lives practically? Step number one, man, be surrendered to the Lord for all that he has. And here's the, the reality. The only reason that we can sit in this place and even consider being surrendered to the Lord is because he was surrendered for us, right? He gave his life for us first that we might be able to turn around and give our lives back to him. And that's the beautiful thing about communion. That's what we get to do this morning. We get to remember the sacrifice that God made for us. That he sacrificed himself that we might sacrifice our lives for him. Lay it all out on the line. And when, when Jesus instituted communion, man, he, he said, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. Remember who he was talking to. It was in the upper room. He was surrounded by the disciples who just moments before knowing that Jesus is going to his death, they were arguing about who was going to be the best in the kingdom. You're not going to be the greatest. I'm going to be the greatest. No, you're not. I'm going to be the greatest. And they were so involved with who was the the best that they neglected the most basic of hospitality in washing each other's feet. So here they are. They're they're just in this place. And, And Jesus says, hey, do this in remembrance of me. As often as you do this, as often as you do what? He says, as often as you have bread, and wine. Remember me. Remember what it is I'm doing for you. That I'm giving my body for you. This is my body given for you. This is my blood as he held up the the wine. It's the new covenant. And remember, Jesus said, I want you to remember what it is I've done for you. And I want you to remember who you are as a result. And that's always the first step of surrender. And remember what the Lord has done for us. Man, God, in light of these things, it's so easy to be surrendered to you. So as we come to the table this morning, man, we have that opportunity to just reflect and remember, Lord, in light of your mercy, in light of all that you've done for me, uh, you've, you've transformed my life, in light of who I am now, I pray that we would be a people that as we come to the table that we're surrendered to. We say, Lord, I'm all in. Here's my life. It's yours. It was bought with a price. And it wasn't silver or gold. It was the precious blood of your son, Jesus that we would be those who give our best to the Lord. We're not perfect, but that we give him our best. Now, as we have that in the forefront of our thinking, man, the goodness of God, that we wouldn't be sucked into the world, but that we'd be transformed by the renewing of our minds, that we'd be those who stay close to the Lord. And boy, communion is a great way. It's one of those things, man, transform the renewing of your mind. You come have your mind renewed at the table of communion. Come be refreshed, come rejoice. And if there's things that you're dealing with, if you're in this place this morning, you're like, man, I got drug here by my friend. This is all foreign to me. I don't get it. I want you to know something this morning. God loves you right where you are. He has a plan for your life. He desires to save you and set you free from all your sin and the consequences of them. And he's available. But in order to be forgiven, you have to believe. That's what the Bible says. If you want to be saved, that you believe with your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is who he said he is. He's God incarnate. 
that he did what he said, that he, he died on the cross for you and for me. He was buried and he conquered the grave three days later and you're saved. And you don't have to come up here and make a spectacle or you don't have to do anything. You just do it in your seat. But I want to make the opportunity available to you this morning. If you've never given your life to the Lord, if you've never had your sins forgiven, man, do that. Ask God to forgive you of your sins and you will be forgiven. Believe what he's done for you. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this teaching of God's Word presented by Siskiyou Christian Fellowship. We pray it's blessed you and given you a greater understanding of the Bible. To learn more about us, visit siskiyouchristianfellowship.com. Thank you.